Please pray with me. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the Scriptures are read and your Word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's Scripture lesson may be found in 1 John chapter 4, beginning at verse 17. Let us hear God's Word. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God, and hate their brothers and sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this, those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. This is the word of God for the people of God. Have you ever noticed that God's Judgment Day is a favorite topic of cartoonists and uh, stand-up comics. Here's an example. A Rottweiler, a Chihuahua, and a cat all die and appear before the judgment seat of God. God turns to the uh, Rottweiler first and says, why should I let you into my heaven? The dog replies, well, I, I protected my family for many, many years, and actually I died saving their lives from a terrible fire. God said, well done. <laughs> Come, sit at my right hand. And you, Snuffles, why should I let you into my heaven? The Chihuahua replied, well, I, I, I didn't die heroically, but, but I did offer comfort and love for an elderly lady during her, her final days. Good enough. Come, sit at my left hand. And finally, God addressed the cat. Why should I let you into my heaven? The cat looked up and calmly said, because you are sitting in my chair. <laughs> now, if you've never owned a cat, you won't understand the humor of that joke, because the fact is no one ever owns a cat. The cat owns them. And in this instance, even God's throne. Now, in the church of my youth, the day of judgment was no laughing matter. It hung over our heads like the sword of Damocles. We were told again and again that God would turn against us if we committed even a single unforgiven sin. And sin, in our theological dictionary, was defined by the big five. Smoking, drinking, dancing, card playing, and going to movies. Well, drinking because it might lead to alcoholism. Card playing because it might lead to uh, gambling. 
and dancing, of course, because it might lead to illicit sex. And movie-going? Well, that's because we were told that when you bought that ticket at the movie theater, you were supporting the evil lifestyle of all of those wicked movie stars. You know, it never occurred to us that if we bought a can of Campbell's soup, we might be aiding and abetting the evil lifestyle of the people who canned it. Ridiculous, ridiculous. Now, we got rid of our sins at the altar every Sunday evening. Catholics go to confession on Saturday. We went to the altar on Sunday. Every Sunday evening, our pastor would preach a hellfire and damnation sermon, after which he would invite us to come forward to the altar, kneel there, and confess our sins. We sang, Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come I come, and we sang verse after verse after verse of that song until finally someone came to the altar to pray. Well, I remember one Sunday evening, I had homework still to do. And after singing ten verses of of Just As I Am, I looked at my watch and thought to myself, I've got to get home. I went forward to the altar just to get the service over with. God forgive me. (laughs) Fuller Seminary liberated me from that theology, at least intellectually. But the fear of God's judgment is more emotional than intellectual. And I have to admit today that the old tapes still play deeply in my soul. You're no good. You are unworthy. You have committed too many sins over and over and over again. And now God, like that radar cop hiding behind the billboard, is going to arrest you, is going to pitch you into hell and throw away the key. Does that resonate at all with you? Are you too... Afraid of God's righteous radar? According to Paul Turnier, the Swiss psychotherapist, we must frankly admit that this is the state in which the majority of Christians appear to be today. They picture God as one who loves them only on condition that they are good and who refuses them his love if they become guilty. Was Turnier talking about you? Well, if so, John's letter has your address on the envelope. Love has been perfected among us in this, he writes, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment. And again, perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. For anyone afflicted with guilt... That's mighty good news. Who doesn't want to have the fear of God's judgment cast out once and for all? 
But the question is, whose love casts out all fear? Whose love is so perfect that it will give them boldness on the day of judgment? Not mine, and not yours, if you're honest. If I've learned anything in my 87 years on this planet, it is that my love is far, far from perfect. So, when I stand before God in the not-too-distant future, there's no use handing in my resume. For I have not loved the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I have not loved my neighbor as I have loved myself anywhere, anywhere near so. But thank God, thank God the perfect love in this text does not refer to my love or yours. It's not our feeble efforts to love God and to love our neighbor perfectly that casts out all fear of God's judgment. No, it is God's perfect love that gives boldness in the day of judgment. It is God's perfect love that casts out all fear of that future day. Indeed, John writes in his gospel, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And the Apostle Paul adds, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And again, who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for, the, for us. Think of that. We are the objects not of God's condemnation, but of Christ's intercession. Not of God's punishment, but of Christ's prayers. What a gracious Savior. What a loving God. But again, how can I know that God loves me with this perfect love? Where is the proof that I need not fear God's judgment? Is it a feeling thing? Is it a warm inner glow like the mountaintop experience that some Christians talk about? Am I looking for some kind of spiritual high to convince me of God's love? Well, thank God for feelings. Life would be pretty dull without them. But feelings are fickle. They come and they go. They rise and they fall, depending on the circumstances. I can testify to you this morning that a migraine headache will drive every whisper of piety right out of your soul. And that a bad case of the flu can make you almost doubt the existence of God. Well then, if love in the Bible, God's love, is not a feeling thing, what is it? If you've ever attended a marriage encounter weekend, you were told again and again that love is a choice, not a feeling. We choose to love our spouses on the bad days as well as the good. 
Whether we feel like it or not, we vacuum the floors. We do the dishes, we make the bed, we take out the garbage. No, that's not how Hollywood defines love, but that is how the Bible defines love. Love is a choice. It's a choice to act for another's good, for another's welfare. And so love propelled God into this messy world in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And then love propelled Jesus to a cross on a hill far away where our sins were covered once and for all and our judgment canceled forever. And now, God's love propels us outward, not to judge others, but to serve the rich, the poor, the proud, the humble, the least, the last, the lost. Take another good look at the Good Samaritan. There was absolutely no rational reason for him to stop and take care of the man, the man who was lying in the ditch. Well, to begin with, no one would blame him for passing by the, on the other side. He had never met the man. He didn't know him from Adam. He wasn't a doctor. He couldn't heal him. The road he was on was notorious for muggings, and the best policy was to just keep on going as fast as he could. Most importantly, the wounded man was a Jew. He was a Samaritan, and there was absolutely no love lost between those two races. Talk about judging. They hated each other. And yet he chose to stop. He chose to bind up his wounds, give him first aid. He chose to put him on his donkey. He chose to take him to a motel. He chose to pay for his lodging and for his medical care. It wasn't a feeling thing at all. It was nothing subjective. It was an objective choice, a choice not to judge but to love. Recent history offers many illustrations of love as a choice. Think of Jan and Mip Zees, who hid Anne Frank and four other Jews. They knew they could be executed if they were found out, but they chose to do it. They chose to do it because it was the right thing to do, because it was the loving thing to do. Think of Mother Teresa taking the dying off the streets of Calcutta and caring for them until they died. It's interesting that when she first went looking for a place to house them, she confessed that she had second thoughts about the, the whole idea. Here's what she said. The comfort of Loretto, that was her order of nuns there in Calcutta, the comfort came to tempt me. You have only to say the word and all that will be yours again, the tempter kept on saying. Of free choice, my God, and out of love for you, I desire to remain and do whatever be your holy will. You see, if she had followed her feelings, 
She, she would have returned to her teaching post at St. Mary's High School. She had already been teaching there for 17 years. But of free choice, she was propelled out into the streets of Calcutta. Why, you say, those people lived in a different universe. If that's what love requires, how can I possibly live up to their standard? But 99% of the time, love is humdrum, not heroic. Love is down-to-earth gestures of care and concern. For example, I know a, a, a husband who, who chose, who chose to compliment his wife every day of their marriage, to thank her for her wonderful cooking, to compliment her on the way she dressed, to thank her for playing the piano, providing music in their home. And then she would turn around and tell him that she could never have married anyone else. And after 50 years, she would do it all over again. He filled her to overflowing with love, and then she took the surplus and filled him with love. It was kind of love in perpetual motion, each one filling the other with the love that they had given to one another. It was love turning compliments into marital joy. I think of the teenage girl who welcomed every stranger who came into the, into the school. Oh, the other girls shunned them. They had their cliques. The stranger was an outsider, an alien. But this young girl asked the newcomer to sit with her at lunchtime, introduced her to her friends, invited her to Sunday school, made her feel that she was the most important person in the entire school. It was love turning a stranger into a friend. My friend Wouter Bosch chose to spend his vacations in Sri Lanka performing surgery on hamstrung tendons so that men who had been crippled for so many years could stand up straight again, get a job, and support their families. In Sri Lanka, people with disabilities were judged as unworthy even outcasts. But Wooter chose to wield his scalpel to give hope to people he would never see again. It was love transforming disabilities into capabilities. And then every issue of uh, the Week magazine includes the celebration of someone's act of generosity. In last week's issue, a mail carrier named Shonda Lemon noticed that 89-year-old Helen hadn't picked up her mail for three days. She rang the doorbell, and when no one answered, she called 911. Helen was found sprawled on the floor, still alive. Today she's recovering, thanks to Shonda's quick action. Here's what Shonda said of herself. I like this. I think you will, too. I just look at myself as one of God's children looking after his other kids. Well, that's who you are too, isn't it? And if we were sitting together today, face to face, I know you could add the down-to-earth ways you are looking after 
God's kids. Because I know you do it. I honor you for it. And God honors you for it. But if for some reason the sword of Damocles is still hanging over your head, if you are afraid that you haven't done enough, haven't given enough, haven't, haven't loved enough to get past God's judgment seat, then let me tell you about my friend John. He and I were rooming together at a church conference here in Southern California, and I'm, I'm not sure what triggered my anxiety that day. All I know is that I was deeply afraid that that I had abused God's patience once too often, and I just unloaded on John. He listened patiently to my guilt-ridden diatribe. And finally, he looked me in the eye and he said, Tom, God loves you, and you can't do anything about it. If you remember nothing else from this sermon today, remember this. God loves you, and you can't do anything about it. Except perhaps to say, thank you.